Hi, my name is Dan Ariely, and welcome to Arming the Donkeys, a weekly podcast about science. Every week, I will talk to one researcher about one project who have a chat about what they found and what it means for our lives. Dan's guest this week is Leif Nelson of the marketing group at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Leif and Dan discuss adaptation, why we get used to things, but not all things and not always. Their conversation is based on a chapter in Dan's latest book, The Upside of Irrationality. So we're sitting here outside. It's quite beautiful, huh? It is. It is we're beautiful. in San Diego. San Diego, yes. And uh, it's kind of getting, getting darker. And you recently uh, almost got tenure, right? Or <laughs> I'm, I'm extremely close to getting tenure, hopefully. <laughs> so we're here to celebrate uh, your tenure decision and on's tenure decision. And right. um, I'm, I'm sitting with Leif Nelson and uh, we are... I'm sitting with Dan Ariely, by the way, for what it's worth. <laughs> yes. Not worth much. And in, in one chapter, I, I write about your research on adaptation. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of try to maybe quickly just recap the basic idea? Sure. So I think the, the basic concept is straightforward. Well, there's two sides to it. One is characterizing the, what happens during an experience. And, the, and we talk about adaptation in that sense. So you, and you have work on this as well. So any experience is, think of a massage. A massage is fantastic when it starts. And after five minutes, it's still good, but it's less so. Uh, you're getting used to it, if you will. And the work I've done, primarily with, with Tom Mevis and with Jeff Gallick, is suggests that one of the things that you can do to sort of sustain the enjoyability is to disrupt the experience, to put a little break in the middle. So the massage goes for a few minutes, then it stops, then it comes back. And those disruptions make the experience feel more intense for a longer period of time. So that's part one, and that's but, a little... But, but yeah. the, kind of the, counter, the counterintuitive part is that people think that they actually don't want to disrupt. Exactly. Stuff. So that's the second part, and that's that as much as the effect I described, there's some subtlety to it and lots of variables that determine it, but it's, it's there. There's no subtlety in whether or not people seek it. That is, yeah. everyone says, of course I want a continuous massage, right? I, w- I don't want a disruption anywhere. Yeah. Right. Now... Now, you know, massages are not that frequent. I don't know about your life. Uh, no, it's, my life is also <laughs> massage, massage uh, uh, deprived. Yes. Um, so, so let's think about where does this actually apply in life. So let's actually talk about adaptation in general. Where, where do you think we, we adapt to things to the larger degree and kind of misallocate our resources and our time and our decisions? It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting problem. And I think part of what's interesting about it is that the best cases tend to be ones that don't necessarily work according to the models, right? So the classic is uh, one that you say, like living next to a freeway, ends up being in the other category, where people move next to a freeway and say, I bet I'll get used to that annoying sound. And it turns out a year later they say, I hate that annoying sound. Yeah. So that one's bad, but there's so many and, other and things. And by the way, yeah. why do you think people don't adapt to annoying sounds? They also People also don't adapt to commuting, which I find very interesting. Right. But commuting turns out to be that it's because you can't exactly predict what it will be. So if, if you have a commuting that always takes 20 minutes, you had good public transportation, that will be one thing. But if commuting one time takes you 20 minutes, one time 25, one's 12, you never know what to plan on. And because of that, you, you can't really adapt to it. So that, And I, I would have said, and I have the same sort of uh, characterization. And I think what's interesting about it is it's like living next to the freeway. The thing about the freeway is if I asked you to characterize what it would be, you would say, oh, I bet living in the freeway is loud and there's this constant drone. And of course, that's utterly false. Living next to a freeway is lots and lots of more or less silence followed by 
a, a loud truck honking his horn or downshifting or rush hour traffic. Yeah. And it turns out it's that variability. It's the brief breaks from the noise that make the noise itself seem so much more salient. And I think similarly with commuting, right? If your commute, uh, long ago, I had a, I had a, my commutes are very short. I'd like, I don't like commuting either. Yeah. If you commute on a road that never has traffic, you learn to embrace the 20 minutes of it. Oh, yeah. I'm going to listen to half of an album and I'm going to yes. uh, have the sunroof open and so on. But it's that commutes never have that feature, as you described. Yeah. They are always constantly changing, and those changes mean that it's always a little bit annoying. Yeah. So those are the cases where people think they will adapt wrongly, and they don't adapt. And partially it's because of the right. disruption, interruption. What What are the cases where people don't anticipate adaptation, but you think they do adapt? So I mean, it, it's it, it sounds funny, but I was said roughly speaking, it's it's everything else is at least what the what the lesson says there's a review by our our friend uh george lonestein and and shane frederick about all this stuff and one of my favorite and it's mostly an anecdote from them is talking about prisoners and you say going to jail is aversive no one wants to go there everyone wants to leave but on the other hand there's a very dramatic change that occurs once you're in your jail cell that you shift from a world of the dread of being in jail to spontaneously this is where I live. And now the concerns are much more, gosh, I really wish I was in a 9 by 9 cell instead of an 8 by 8 cell. Yeah. Which is to say, they've really adapted to the core part of it. And that's because I'd say being in jail is, that's kind of a constant. Yeah. Really you know, I recently talked to a guy who was in solitary confinement for a year. Ouch. Ouch. Okay. And, uh, he <laughs> and he actually said that one of the toughest things about it was the screaming of people at night. So he basically said that it was so that's, that's vivid. difficult that, that um, as he was going throughout his day, he could, he could start thinking, he could start concentrating, have his own mental life. But the shouting that happened, uh, uh, mostly at night, would basically kind of shake him and kind of take him out of his wow. uh, peaceful state. And it was very difficult. I mean, he described all kinds of other awful, yeah, awful that, things. That's a, that's a tough start, though, to the anecdote. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah. So, so you do... Uh, but but assuming you don't get to solitary confinement and there's not this, this screaming, uh, the idea is that the move from out of jail to in jail looks incredibly daunting. When you're in jail, you don't think about that comparison. You think about the small things in life. That's and right. You change your frame of reference. And things get easier. Yeah. Yeah. You go, it becomes a day-to-day concern. Yeah. You know, another thing I like about their paper is that they report that you never really get used to a death of a child but you do get used to the death of a spouse. It's all kind of a sad perspective, right? Yeah, no, so, yeah, that's, uh, it, is, it is sad. And uh, God knows if you've ever met someone who's lost a child, they'll, it's instantly clear, yeah. right? You, it, they might have lost a child 10 years ago, and you're like, hmm. And it's yep, still, it's still part tell. of it. Yep. Yeah, but it's also kind of depressing to think that our spouses, uh, yours and mine, will not be that upset if we were disappearing one right, day. Right, yeah, we're, we're fungible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's right. the kids. So, um, so basically, the, the, the real story is adaptation happens in lots and lots of stuff. Uh, and then disruptions are really crucial. And um, we need to think about how we use those disruptions to make our lives uh, better. How do we um, disrupt adaptation when it's right. uh, adaptation to something good? And maybe how we accelerate adaptation yeah. when it's adapting to something bad that right. happened. So if you think about your own, your own life, are there any things that you're doing differently or thinking about it differently? This is, this is where uh, I'm sort of like 
vaguely embarrassed at being a non-practitioner of what I of what I preach, and that is to say. I can spot certain things, particularly on the negative side. And I think a lot of people have these sort of problems where they, they have a vague intuition in the back of their mind where they say, you know what, I bet if I just stayed at it every minute for the whole day with no disruption, I would kind of get used to it and it would be okay. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, even if you have that belief, you don't set up your schedule that way. You make sure that you put a break in there. You say, I, I, for academics, a big part of what is difficult about our lives is writing papers. Or grading papers, even more so. <laughs> grading papers is the true catastrophe. And, but no one says, what I'm going to do is buckle down, set aside 14 consecutive hours, and grade everything. What you do is you say, well, I'm going to grade for an hour, and I'll reward myself by having a coffee break. And I can't stop myself from doing that, despite the fact that I know both uh, from introspection and from all this other empirical evidence I've collected, that is a completely wrong. You don't take the coffee break, but you, it feels like you need it in prospect. Yeah, so, so it's the reward, but, but it's interesting, right? Because it's not just the break. Uh, you, you think about a reward function mm. that says, I've done something bad, I need a reward to motivate me. Uh, I actually spent last Saturday uh, graded from 10 in the morning until 9 in the evening. Oh, and finished, finished, the whole <laughs> <laughs> uh, finished the whole grading for the, for the term. Uh, it, was, it was a brutal day, but, uh, you know, one day, one day of the semester, I can, I can do that. So are there any areas of your life when you've actually tried to, to practice that? I, uh, buying a house, getting a car, uh, having a new child. Interesting. So there, there are domains where I'm, I'm extremely aware of adaptation. So the disruption part, there's two... I'm just not good enough at being strategic. But I can anticipate certain things that I know I won't care about. And I'm not great at it, but I can... Buying new goods is the classic. That's, this is one of the steepest adaptation curves that people say, oh, I, I really need a, that. I need the TV that's 52 inches instead of 48 inches. We love talking about flat panel TVs and marketing. I don't know why, but it's, it's a norm. In any case, but people treat that very seriously and they'll spend hundreds of dollars to get that marginal change. That is the kind of thing I've gotten better at mm-hmm. because I say, oh, you know what? I'm not going to care about my TV almost instantly. It's not just 52:48. I'm really not going to care about anything about it because I'm going to be watching The Godfather, in which case it's actually the narrative that's the only thing that matters, right? Mm-hmm. And so the screen size and resolution drops to zero quickly. And so we, we, those are the kind of things. Most, a lot of basic consumer goods are very high, adap- high adaptation categories. And yep. I think I'm better at that. Okay, now, but, but here's a more kind of advanced thought. So imagine that you said, I really want this 52-inch television, but what I'll do is I'll get the 21-inch television, uh, bed screen, and put that one in my bedroom. So, so every day it will remind me about what the contrast could have been. That, and that is, that is the ultimate strategic consumer. <laughs> and and, and I, so that's the kind of thing that uh, our papers vaguely advocate for in the sense of so one of one of our findings in it is basically when you import this to the idea of watching tv you say oh a te- television program is great but it'd be even better without these ads and we argue that that's at least in some circumstances wrong that tv ads because they disrupt it yeah make it better now you know if they're really annoying it just adds to the annoyance but they're, they're locally annoying right at yeah. any given moment you'd of course rather watch the show than the ad yeah. but if i look over the last hour how much did i enjoy my life at least in our experiments and, and we predicted this would happen in a lot of situations the ads make things a little bit better because yeah. the program gets so much better and that's so that's the dominant experience over the last hour uh 
those things I'm better at. Now, I don't watch ads necessarily, but I almost never, if I'm watching at home, will make it, if you will, possible for myself to watch an entire movie. Mm-hmm. Right, so I so you so you will take breaks. I will and I'll, and I'll and I'll force breaks both ahead of time and during. Like it's hard to do it during, but it's yeah. okay ahead of time if you say. So my wife Deborah would say to me, "All right, we need to talk and about." And Deborah, by the way, you know, is featured in another chapter. Which ah, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes, yes uh, that's that's right. So it's uh, a, both of you have uh, become uh, part of my my life. This, in this is way. The, the, all of Dan's friends <laughs> get immortalized in this friendly way. Uh, but no, so so De- so Dever would say, "All right, we need to talk about on the plus side. Talk, we need to talk about the vacation we're taking." I say, "Great, uh, let's if you will schedule that for forty-five minutes from now. I'm going to start <laughs> this movie, and then you go ahead and inter- interrupt me." And that I'm willing to grant sounds a little weird, but it is actually quite literally how I like to approach things. That it turns out movies really are substantially more enjoyable if it gets turned off for yeah. a little while, and. Uh, And you get to come back to you. You have that wonderful experience of, oh, settling back into your chair or maybe picking up your drink again. And, you know, even if the break is brief, it has that very nice effect. Yeah. Now, I've kind of been very curious about taxes. Taxes is one of the things I hate the most. I have uh, all, all year long, I spend time uh, putting receipts in some boxes. And then the time comes to find out all the boxes and find out the receipts and, and just collect them and figure out what's, what's acceptable. And, not, and it, it's an awful, awful task for me I just I just don't like it I really wish we had just a fixed tax and everything would have been simple I also don't like these all these kind of consideration right what, what is exactly legal and what exactly is not legal and what are right. the boundaries and what do they mean by a, a business expense right if, if you and I go to dinner is it a business expense or really how to figure out sure you know it'll be nice to work together but in, in what sense is it kind of something that the tax code hmm. is trying to encourage us to do right. to do more of? And if, what if we have wine, right? Is this, is this really something that is beneficial for the, the tax planner? Um, but, but your advice is actually quite simple, right? You really want to do everything in one, in one setting. I, I, ideally. Now, mind you, what exactly the features you describe about what makes paying taxes or preparing to pay taxes, what makes it hard is that it, as much as it feels mundane from like a distance, when I think about paying my taxes next April, I say... Uh, it's like some big bureaucratic thing, but it's all those subtleties about it. I mean, you, it, it is exactly the thing that's hard to adapt to. If it, uh, Citing another one of our colleagues' work, uh, Tim Wilson has these wonderful findings that if you say, if you add just a hint of uncertainty to something, your mind just perseverates on it. So I say, uh, you've gotten feedback from three people. All of them say that you're very handsome. But I'm not going to tell you which of those three people said which of these three comments. That keeps you happy basically all day long. But if I say, oh, Susie said this, and Jane said that, and Wendy said the last one, well, that's happy for a few seconds, but then you're over it. And I yeah. sort of think with taxes, it's that uh, the U.S. government always keeps you guessing, <laughs> right? So there's no room to just and, kind and of settle into it. And you don't know. If you don't know if later on they'll come up and say, hey, you were wrong in this interpretation for some reason. Oh, God, that's the worst because you know that because it's lurking out there. That's that element of uncertainty. And you know you're going to have to do it all again somehow to find <laughs> whatever the mistake was. Oh, so it's so, yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, taxes, it feels like it should be monotonous and then you should take it all in one, one chunk. But they work very hard to make sure it doesn't have the monotony that leads to the adaptation we seek. I see. So, so actually taxes, what you're saying is that the complexity of the task and, mm. and the nuances of it, actually, you don't actually get adapt to it. Because 
the, the, the nature of it is that it's so complex and you, you never become kind of mindless. It doesn't become less tedious over time. In fact, you might kind of get more and more annoyed over time as you, as you discover more and more complexities. That's right. That's right. And I, and I think uh, there's, a few, there's a few lines of argument that if you take that to its extreme, make sort of allow for some subtle inferences about which of the experiences but, but by the way yeah. just so so it means that if you have a simple tax code if it's just about ah. entering number in and entering your receipts and you knew what's okay and not okay then it will be a process which you would adapt to and you want to do it in a simple one right. setting yeah. but if it's complex and thoughtful and unclear and you have to go back to the tax code and figure out what's happening and you uh, yeah. go on the bulletin board and turbo tax and we ask what other people are doing and so on <laughs> All that makes it such that you can't adapt to it because it never gets right. to the monotonous. That's right. You know, we can't, we can't possibly uh, talk about adaptation in a reasonable way without talking about one of the most important things, which is, is how do people get used to either each other in a romantic, long-term romantic relationship or how people get used to their sex lives. And, and you've been married now for about nine years? That's about right. And, and how long have you known Deborah before? another four years before that okay so so it's been a while right it's been a while and and i'm sure you thought about what what are the principles of adaptation and unadaptation means for both uh, marriage and and ha happy sex life so what what are kind of the the main lesson so obviously i, I think it should be stated right up front that uh, my sex life is fantastic and improves <laughs> with every day uh deborah that i just said that just so you know it is it is a it's a peculiar quirk that it's not just that sex is something we talk about and it feels relevant here. It's almost like the human biological system defeated us on this regard. Getting used to the cars on the freeway, that's, that's a modern problem and modern solutions. Either it be sound insulation or scheduling the time you wake up in the morning, solve the problem. And I'm not an evolutionary psychologist by any means, but their argument is basically... Although, although you do have this paper in evolutionary psychology about how men who are hungry <laughs> crave uh, chubbier women. The, the listeners just lost 50% of my credibility right there. Like, ooh, that sounds weird. Um, uh, but, they, but the argument is basically, from, for, especially for men, you want them to adapt because you want them to have strong motives to go out and... Because what really adds variety is changes. Yep. And not just changes about like, oh, you know, is it, are we going to have sex in this room or that room? Uh, no, but like, am I going to have sex with Susie or Wendy? And that's that's the kind of variety that obviously keeps people from adapting. But yeah. in a world where you're married, you want false adaptation. False, yeah. I'm sorry, uh, false variety. Yeah. And then maybe that is choosing different rooms or choosing days of the week. Or, And you can imagine that, again, in uh, a world that is probably beyond reality, you want to basically add the sex randomizer button. Uh-huh. Right? Where somehow you have... Uh, Somebody's doing their laundry. They're, it they're, sounds like they yeah, really yeah. are doing their laundry. <laughs> yeah, this is taking us out of our adaptation. Yes, but it seems like a, a real plausible answer would be you almost want to set a timer that says it goes bing and you're like, all right, you have to have sex with your wife in the next 20 minutes. Wow, that's a lot of uncertainty. I just added to your sex life, <laughs> yeah. right? And it so, seems so the wandering, likely. the continuous wandering of when will it happen. Exactly. Uh, but, but it also perhaps means that even things that seem superficial like rooms and uh, role-playing and stuff that sounds, sounds just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to different people sounds differently, uh, might actually create a higher degree of variety that is actually quite useful. That's right. And, and it's, it's interesting. I think that that is, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly not an expert when we get to sort of stuff this far afield, but my intuition is that, yeah, all those, li those little pieces of, of false variety might not be perfect, right? They're not, they're not 
true, authentic, deep variety, but they're enough yeah. to sustain the enjoyment, to make sure that adaptation is held at bay. Yeah. Now, what about taking breaks? So lots of your work is about taking breaks. So mm-hmm. uh, would you think, for example, that there's an optimal amount of time in which people should spend apart? You know, I travel a lot and I, I've been thinking about this, right? Is there, is there an optimal amount of time that people should uh, spend apart so they don't adapt? Or, and, and the same thing you can think about in terms of sex. Like, should you try and stop in the middle, uh, go and have a cup of tea and, and come back to it? So oddly enough, I would have said, for starting with the latter one, I actually think that might be true. I mean, like, so for all of the coitus interruptus ch- talk that is uh, part of the familiar language of our chosen profession, I, I think, roughly speaking, Freud is wrong, right? That, yeah, in, interrupt interrupt the sex. I mean, even, mm-hmm. even interrupt it long periods, like functionally remove the orgasm from that particular episode. I think that's pretty good, right? Uh-huh. You're, you're peaked for a while, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's really... On the other side, in saying, do we, should we put interruptions in the form of space between episodes or something? I'm going to use what I, I still I see as generally a, a cheap way out here, and that I'd say that individual differences matter a lot. And not in not tricky. That cool. sounds very cheap. I know, but not not tr- not like sort of blah blah blah. Like something matters, but I think we all know this from knowing different people. I have a a very good friend, a former colleague of mine at, at NYU, that has finally figured out how to sustain really a quite nice relationship, that is predicated on the fact that he's dating a woman that's uh, doing her medical residency, and the reason it makes his relationship work great is she is just incredibly busy a lot of the time and it means that there is no period where where they spend five consecutive days together it just isn't possible and because of that he's always thrilled to see her and she's always thrilled to see him Mm -hmm. and on the other hand i know a lot of other people that and this is much more the norm who for whom five days apart you would have said that's characterized as being like lonely I I miss my spouse, and I think that's yeah. nice. It's but, nice, of but, course. But, but your 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 theory suggests that even if you miss them, that might be actually good, right? It's not necessarily bad. You you miss them. I mean, it's a question of how long you miss them. But it's good to miss them because when, then when you see them, you're all the more happy. That's right. And so there probably is. I mean, it, there's a trick, right? There is to say, if you're like Odysseus and you miss your wife for 20 years, it's really nice to get back. <laughs> but on the other hand, man, that's 20, 20 years. years. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a lost so, time. So that's that's the question. What's the optimal? What's the optimal? Yeah, and, and obviously, with especially with relationships, things get too complex for me to say. You're too wimpy. That's, I, no, that's the thing. I, I, think that's, <laughs> I think that's the wrong, the wrong angle. But I'd, I'd say that the, in, the insight that, that, that I've had is that uh, is not on how long, what is the optimal length on the long side. It's that how much you can get out of breaks that are incredibly trivially short, mm-hmm. right? And so with a relationship, it's subtle, but again, this, going all the way back to thinking about watching TV, it's not that you have to have a long break. I need to go, you know, for a week. fold all the laundry. I don't need a, I don't need a week off. Yeah. Uh, to just, but if you just turn the TV off for 20 seconds, it has a very powerful effect. Yeah. Right? And I think so so can, we, can we see this as a kind of endorsing being late, coming home from work? As you say, basically, I, it's just this small, uncertain <laughs> interval that is coming between the time I was supposed to come home to the time I actually arrive at home is going to create uncertainty, relief from adaptation, therefore increase our long-term happiness in our relationship. Is this, is this kind of your advice? Can we take this as a summary? Would that help you if I gave you that one? <laughs> I, think, I think so. Yeah, it would probably help both of us. Yeah, that's, that's directionally right. The downside of, of Dan's comment is, of course, it can just as easily go the other way. If you say you're going to be home at 7, 
Coming home at 6.55 is also uncertain. <laughs> but man, that is a lot better. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. This has been Arming the Donkeys, a weekly podcast with Duke University behavioral economist Dan Ariely. Dan's latest book is The Upside of Irrationality. Learn more at predictablyirrational.com.